Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. The information depicted in this podcast is purely for informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional before making any changes to your lifestyle or routine. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Boost Your Biology podcast. My name is Lucas, and I'm the founder of Ergogenic Health. Together in this podcast series, we will go underground to explore cutting-edge health and human performance insights that you simply cannot search on Google to help you upgrade your existence. So without any further ado, let's jump into today's episode. What's up, fam? Lucas here. I want to take a moment to announce a couple of things to all my new listeners on the podcast. Firstly, if you're looking to upgrade your brain function, whether that be through reducing brain fog, enhancing verbal fluency, improving confidence, motivation, drive, or even orgasm intensity, then check out my Nootropics course, which can be found on my website at www.ergogenic.health. And you'll see at the top, it will say courses where you can use the discount code BYB15 to save 15% off. In addition, I also have a sleep optimization masterclass and a testosterone optimization course that can also be accessed on my website. Again, you can use the same discount code BYB15 to save 15% off. I wanted to quickly give a shout out to my friends over at Neurotech. They've recently launched a new nootropic formula that's designed to have an anti-stress effect and help one with their sleep. 
this particular hot chocolate formula is designed to help one unwind after a hard day at work. It contains some pretty unique ingredients such as magnesium glycinate, L-theanine, and some other adaptogenic herbs. You can use the discount code BYB to save 20% off on all Neurotech products. That's BYB to save 20% off. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Boost Your Biology podcast. Today, I'm very excited because we have a fellow underground and very well-known biohacker. He he goes by the name Simland. And if you ever come on YouTube, you'll know Simland straight away. He is probably one of the the most well-known content creators in the space of uh, longevity, fasting, autophagy. Um, And so today's episode will be covering all things related to autophagy and longevity, hormesis and stress adaptation, minerals in the body, sleep optimization, and building muscle and strength. So Simland, welcome to the show, man. Yeah, thanks for having me and uh, glad to speak to you. Awesome. So, Sim, do you want to let my listeners know a little bit about you and uh, how you became so fascinated with the uh, biohacking space? Hmm. Well, uh, you know, uh, back in high school, I basically uh, got into uh, weightlifting and uh, you know, bodybuilding. And uh, that's where I you know, started to learn more about nutrition, different kinds of exercises. And yeah, just wanting to you know improve uh, mostly my strength and performance and the body composition. So that was like you know the main um, first uh, reasons why I got into let's say health and uh, performance optimization in general. And from there, I just uh, also you know you know, stumbled upon the concept of biohacking and everything related to that, uh, like the uh, longevity aspect, the uh, cognition, the brain the, um, you know, sleep, uh, that sort of thing, and kind of realized how interconnected all those things are. And yeah, I, you know, decided to, you know, (laughs) delve uh, deeper into these topics. uh, And uh, as I, you know, did that, I also started to write my blog about um, this. And from there, I, you know, started the YouTube channel and yeah, just has uh, grown uh, from there. Yeah, I mean, for those who haven't actually checked out Simland's content on YouTube, he posts some really epic videos um, around fasting and longevity and aging. So I guess, Sim, let's sort of um, start with autophagy and longevity. Do you want to sort of run my audience through what this term autophagy actually means? Yeah, well, uh, autophagy uh, translates from uh, Greek into uh, self-eating. And uh, it's this uh, intracellular process where your dysfunctional cell components and like uh, debris, junk and uh, old mitochondria, whatnot, they're going to be recycled and uh, back into energy. And uh, this, you know, process is very, let's say, uh, important for longevity because of, you know, as we get older, then uh, one of the hallmarks of aging is this accumulation of waste and uh, dysfunctional mitochondria and mitochondrial damage, etc. With autophagy, you're essentially helping to clear them out and uh, then uh, in addition to that, autophagy is also, you know, very, um, let's say, critical for uh, other processes in the body, like the immune system. It helps to uh, eliminate pathogens, uh, bacteria, viruses, 
and uh, even things like fat oxidation and uh, fat burning. So it also helps with like breaking down triglycerides and lipids. So it is like a very, uh, like very uh, essential process in the body. And, uh, you know, there are, let's say, benefits to it, but there are also some negative side effects to that. Uh, so it's uh, like a matter of dose of, you know, how much do you want? But uh, yeah, like for a healthy body, you do need like uh, some aspects of autophagy uh, working. Mm. So you've just sort of mentioned how um, there are certain things that can enhance or increase autophagy while some things can sort of hinder it. So let's sort of look at perhaps some lifestyle habits that can um, enhance autophagy. I think uh, it may be true that, you know, that there is some autophagy happening uh, all the time. Uh, so uh, it's just like a, to a lesser degree. And uh, like you said, there are some activities that enhance it uh, further. And in research, it mostly has to do with... Uh, some aspects of uh, like energy, stress, and uh, like nutrient deprivation. So when your body is under a higher amount of um, like loads, some sort of let's say exercise or uh, fasting, then it's going to, in response, going to upregulate the process of autophagy as a way to like you know survive and uh, also you know deal with the stress to a certain extent. So everything like uh, exercise, uh, fasting, calorie restriction, uh, saunas, the cold. Uh, even like uh, hypoxia, you know, uh, oxygen deprivation and uh, different kinds of, uh, you know, uh, let's say foods like, you know, coffee, teas, different vegetables, polyphenols, and uh, those things, they cause like a small amount of energy stress to the body. And uh, that, those do um, like enhance the process of autophagy or like increase some of the uh, activity of it. Interesting. So from a, from like a supplementation or like a, a drug standpoint, um, do you have sort of like your favorites, favorite sort of supplements that can activate or, or stimulate autophagy? Hmm. You know, of course, there is like these, the, the bigger ones, the more known ones are uh, like mycin and metformin, which are like anti-diabetic drugs and supposedly also longevity drugs that activate autophagy by uh, suppressing the growth pathways in the body. Uh, like I, I don't use them, uh, uh, but what I you know on a regular basis can use uh, would be like maybe berberine. It's kind of my uh, favorite ones because uh, it's uh, like a natural metformin in a sense that it also lowers the insulin and blood sugar and uh, turns on like uh, it's an AMPK activator, which is one of the uh, sensors that leads to the elevation of autophagy as well. So berberine is just a, like a safe um, you know, thing that you can use. I usually take it on some days when I eat like carbohydrates or something. I don't take it all the time because that's not you know, necessarily a good idea. Uh, but yeah, whenever I do have that they uh, eat in something with higher carbs, then uh, I'll take that and uh, can kind of mitigate some of the blood sugar response from that. Interesting. Okay. So Sim, did you ever sort of get into, um, did you get into sort of tracking your ketones at all, like in, in the early days? Uh, well, yeah, in the beginning, uh, I did for sure, uh, uh, like not like uh, neurotically or not uh, all the time, but uh, I would, uh, let's say, use the finger, uh, the blood uh, ketone test uh, with the finger prick, uh, maybe, I don't know, a few times a week. Uh, so yeah, usually, yeah, I just uh, looked at some of the, um, you know, maybe maybe if I changed something in my diet or if I ate a bit more carbs, I wanted to see like how my, how it would affect my ketones. Mm. And, but I've also used like the breath, keto, breath ketone meter, the acetone um, breath. And uh, that's more or less easier to do. And I can attract your ketones more frequently. Yeah, because I was curious to know whether um, supplement, supplementing with berberine was sort of enhancing ketone output or like, did you ever see any correlation there at all? Uh, well, um, 
I didn't uh, measure it uh, if I were to be like on uh, full keto already, or I didn't take a berberine. I, I don't take it usually at that time either. But uh, I do notice that if I do take berberine, then uh, the suppression of ketones is much uh, less uh, after eat carbs, so to say. Like if I regularly eat carbs without the berberine, then my ketones are going to be much lower compared to uh, if I do take berberine, then my ketones are going to be still you know, semi-high uh, thanks to that, so, so that the blood sugar response has interfered less uh, with the ketone body production. Mm, interesting. Okay. So obviously you mentioned how autophagy is considered one of the um, sort of, it definitely affects lifespan and aging. So what are some of the other key hallmarks of aging that we, that we know about? Yeah, the, uh, there's a bunch of them and uh, you know, usually they have to do with uh, some sort of uh, intracellular miscommunication or something that uh, the uh, cells and the body, the organs, they start to uh, essentially uh, communicate with each other in a wrong way and a dysfunctional way. Then there's also like the accumulation of these uh, waste material uh, as well as uh, the, you know, the, the mitochondria get damaged, the cells themselves become uh, dysfunctional and damaged with age. There's the also, um, you know, stem cells get exhausted your body's uh, ability to produce hormones goes down, the uh, ability to build muscle decreases. And uh, yeah, just just almost like this, um, you know, that you can't really pinpoint it to exact one thing that is uh, going to happen or what goes wrong, but you can look at it almost like this, uh, you know, uh, like a central uh, miscommunication or a central like epigenetic, I don't know, misfiring or something that uh, the body just uh, loses it or forgets about its ability to be young. Like the DNA gets damaged or DNA methylation profiles get altered. And as a result, the like aging, aging pathways get upregulated and the longevity pathways, the youthful pathways get downregulated. And uh, because of that, you know, the body just starts to uh, accelerate this uh, biological aging process. Mm. Yeah. One thing that we can definitely link in here with, with this conversation is um, the state of one's mitochondrial health um, and whether whether there's sort of an impact there, like does autophagy influence mitochondrial function at all? Uh, yeah, it certainly does. Like uh, there's actually like a ton of different categories of autophagy. And uh, one of the main ones is mitophagy, which is uh, the autophagy of mitochondria. And, uh, you know, mitophagy, is, uh, you know, eliminates uh, these uh, broken mitochondria and old mitochondria and uh, keeps them basically more youthful or keeps the uh, younger ones alive. And uh, the mitochondria are always uh, like, you know, in this between the fission and fusion cycles, they're, you know, merging together or breaking up. And autophagy just helps to kind of clean, clean house and uh, yeah, just keeps things in order. Because, you know, the, like the problem with these, the problem with these uh, damaged mitochondria is that, you know, they stick around and they start to spread inflammation and the damage the neighboring healthy ones. And the same applies to like the cells. Like if a cell is uh, old and uh, becomes uh, diseased, then it's not, it's not going to just stay there like neutrally. It's going to actually start to spread the damage to the neighboring cells. And if it, if it becomes like this senescent cell, which is like a zombie cell, and this senescence spreads and this kind of spreads the inflammation and aging further. So you kind of need to eliminate them on a regular basis. And autophagy and these other, you know, uh, self-cleaning processes in the body, they help to do that. So from a mitochondrial perspective, just curious to know, I mean, I've got my favorite um, mitochondrial enhancers, things like methylene blue, things like coenzyme Q10, acetyl L-carnitine. Just curious to know, Sim, like what's your 
What's your favorite sort of biohack that really helps to optimize mitochondrial function? Yeah, well, um, I do uh, take uh, CoQ10 as well. And, uh, and uh, I do like sometimes may take PQQ as well. Uh, but uh, like the biggest ones, in my opinion, are like actually like exercise and uh, that sort of thing, like the hormetic stressors, because they, they, those are going to both they're going to trigger this, uh, the growth of new mitochondria through mitochondrial biogenesis, as well as uh, enhance like mitochondrial density. So, uh, you know, that's usually I think those are actually more, let's say, um, you know, functional ways of um, enhancing mitochondrial uh, longevity. Interesting. OK, so. Yeah, one thing I've always wanted to know is, is it possible to um, assess someone's mitochondrial function? Like, do we have any, there any sort of, is there objective data to, to verify this at all? Hmm, yeah, that's a good question. Um, off the top of my head, like, I don't really know. Uh, hmm. Maybe, yeah, like, yeah, it's hard to, hard, hard to kind of assess that uh, Unless you have like a specific like a, I, I, I don't even imagine like a, what how would you go about measuring it like you have to do like a laboratory test or something maybe. or do you assess like the fitness fitness of the person like VO two max or something uh, I don't know maybe like yeah. a combination of uh, all those things maybe yeah combination of VO two max plus like a muscle biopsy maybe mm. assessing like type one skeletal muscle fibers not sure but yeah that that'll be interesting so what about Obviously, you know, you mentioned this term hormesis, and I know you talk about this quite a lot. I'm very familiar with it, but do you want to explain to my audience, like, what is the term hormesis? And I guess, why is it so important for longevity? Hormesis is uh, basically uh, what doesn't kill me makes me stronger. So uh, it's a, like a dose specific uh, response to any kind of a stressor or a toxin or injury that um, in a small amounts or in the moderate dose is going to be uh, actually enhancing and like beneficial, but in excess, it's going to be damaging like any, anything. So yeah, it's like a bell curve. It's actually like, you know, good example is exercise. Uh, if you don't exercise at all, you're in very low hormesis or very low stress, then you actually are at a higher risk of all these diseases as well, because your body is, you know, less fit, it's uh, less insulin sensitive you're sedentary and your risk of diseases goes up because you actually don't experience enough stress. If you exercise enough in moderation in the right amounts, then that's, you know, the optimal zone. You're getting all the benefits of that. You're increasing your longevity and uh, health span. But if you overtrain, you know, that's also bad because that leads to, uh, you know, other, other, other kinds of problems, maybe suppressed immune system and uh, sleeping problems, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, it's a bell curve. Not enough is, not enough is good. Too much is, is, is bad. And, um, and you know the optimal amount is in, in somewhere in the middle. So from from like a dietary perspective, I know we talk about compounds like sulforaphane, which do act as a hormetic stress in the body. But it makes me sort of wonder whether having a cheap meal is mm. a, a, you know like a, an aspect of hormesis, right? Right. right. Uh, well, yeah, yeah. I, I I can I can see that because uh, you know. Uh, for, it can definitely apply to some of the foods that you eat, let's say gluten. So if you are on a gluten-free diet all the time, like year-round, 
and then you and you accidentally eat some gluten, then your your body body's kind of have maybe like a harder time dealing with it because you kind of forgot the immune system forgot about how to actually you know deal with the gluten. Whereas if you like microdose the gluten like every every few <laughs> maybe a few times a month or something, then you're, you're keeping like this um, immune system memory uh, alive and uh, you're able to you know deal with it a lot better. So yeah, that can apply to you know every different kinds of allergens and uh, different kinds of let's say bad foods. Uh, of course, there are some foods that uh, don't really have like a hormetic effect, like, I don't know, vegetable oils or uh, margarine. Uh, those probably don't have any hormesis, but uh, let's see some other safer foods that uh, tend to be okay. Plus, like from a, like, a, like a psychological side, if you get freaked out, if you get stressed out uh, because of being afraid of eating uh, like the bad foods, then that can actually cause like more damage to your system uh, compared <laughs> to uh, just, you know, eating it and being at ease with it because you know your body can deal with it. So like a healthy body, a healthy body should be able to, you know, uh, get 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 exposed to uh, like a lot of stress and be able to recover from it instead of just being like isolated from the world uh, completely yeah yeah you, you mentioned um the aspect of sort of like microdosing a stressor um one area that i've sort of been exploring recently i don't know if you've had any experience with homeopathy well i've heard about it yeah uh, it's uh, you know a traditional type of medicine Obviously, like, I mean, I'm, I, I get cautious mentioning homeopathy anywhere I go because a lot of people say it's all placebo, there's no science or whatever. Um, but I think, I guess, like, the principle around that really is just, like, you know, some of the remedies, like, there's one particular remedy that I used um, was actually the remedy that it actually killed Socrates. Um, it's called mm. Conium Maculatum. It's like a particular plan. And I had the homeopathic remedy of it and actually, you know, even though it's poisonous in in large amounts at a micro homeopathic level, had it definitely had some degree of um, psychoactivity to it. So, yeah, I guess the term the term hormesis, like you said, can be applied um, across many aspects of you know one's lifestyle. So, um, how would you encourage people to integrate hormesis? Like, where would you encourage people to start? Uh, yeah, well, uh, you know, I think the most important thing is probably you know exercise itself because uh you know exercise will improve the quality of your life and uh, your uh, let's say fitness and uh, well-being and longevity even if you didn't change anything else even if you kept eating eating like a bad diet uh, just implementing exercise at least will help you to get away with it a, lot, a bit more uh, and it's like one of the most powerful drugs <laughs> if you can call it that and it's very like a yeah very strong uh, therapeutic for a lot of things uh, that's the you know, the first thing that you should do, like both like cardiovascular exercise and the resistance training. Um, after that, I would say that you should also maybe um, Im- implement some form of this time restricted eating that uh, you uh, eliminate snacks and instead of have eating, you know, from uh, sunrise to sundawn, you uh, want to confine it a little bit to some uh, time frame because uh, that's you know also an aspect of hormesis. Plus, there's a lot of uh, other benefits to uh, this um, confining your eating window. Uh, that's going to help with like uh, blood sugar regulation, helps to lower blood pressure, um, improves uh, other biomarkers, and uh, improves sleep. So it's also uh, and plus you know elevates autophagy as well. So it's a very uh, easy way to um, gain some uh, effects of hormesis. Mm. So this um, this time restricted eating, I know that you've um, you went through a period of time where you were fasting almost every day right like for for a number of years is that right uh 
Well, um, I've been doing it, uh, yeah, every day for the last like eight years or something. Oh. Uh, so yeah, I haven't, I haven't like you know stopped or I haven't uh, had a reason to why why would I quit? <laughs> so do you want to explain your your particular um, protocol? Yeah, like in in the past, like I began with uh, just um, eating uh, twice a day at you know 16, 16 hour fasting and eight hour e- eating window. Uh, nowadays, uh, for the last few years, I've been doing like one meal a day mostly, and uh, that uh, isn't like necessarily precisely one meal meal a day, but it's uh, almost like uh, I eat one meal a day. But uh, during my workout, I have like uh, basically a protein shake, uh, and uh, the idea is to you know it's very hard to build muscle and build strength uh, with just one meal a day, uh, and uh, having the protein shake helps me to basically sidestep that and uh, still be able to uh, make progress. Uh, so yeah, that's that's how I do it. Mm. So this uh, this time restricted eating, what do we know in terms of metabolic health? Just by even if we're consuming the same number of calories, I think there's one particular study where they're having the same number of calories, but they're consuming it in a specific time period. What sort of outcomes can people see just by adhering to that? Yeah, there are actually both the human and animal studies that show that. Yeah, the uh, restricted eating window, uh, even if you are eating the same amount of calories, um, mostly it has to do with like better blood sugar, uh, lower insulin, uh, lower triglycerides, better cholesterol, uh, lower blood pressure, and uh, that sort of thing, as well as like increase in the autophagy uh, activation. Uh, and yeah, like e- even in some uh, mice studies where they, uh, the mice are on a, like a junk food diet, they're overeating calories. But if the, if the mice is eating their food in a smaller time frame, like, uh, in, like once a day versus the entire day, then, uh, they're leaner, they're healthier compared to the same mice who are eating, uh, the same amount of calories. So it is uh, like, like a pretty uh, powerful intervention in that but I, I do think you know for humans you still need to like you know restrict your calories if you want to lose weight a little bit but you know arguably you maybe need to do it a bit less maybe like a few percent uh, less uh, to see those, those same effects and uh, some people even think that this uh, eating window the restricted eating window uh, would also help to let's say um, achieve the longevity benefits of calorie restriction without necessarily needing to restrict calories so uh, like in in animal studies it's very known that uh, calorie restriction increases lifespan. And, but the problem is that, you know, for humans, it's uh, very uh, hard to stick to and they're most likely going to fall off the wagon. And uh, the intermittent fasting essentially helps to mimic the effects of calorie restriction by turning on the same pathways as calorie restriction does, but you don't need to uh, restrict the calories at that much to uh, see those effects. Mm. Now, recently, Sim, you spoke about a, was it a particular study that was like a three-week a three-week-long study extending lifespan uh, in in humans. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. It was a um, quite a recent study in uh, April, I think. And uh, yeah, they took they took like um, how much, maybe like forty or fifty people, uh, older men uh, in the fifties and seventies, and uh, they uh, basically put them on uh, this routine where they exercised regularly. They uh, slept well, they did breathing exercises, and uh, they did actually this time restricted eating of uh, fasting for at least 12 hours a day. And uh, their diet was uh, like this, uh, it wasn't like a vegan diet, it wasn't like a carnivore diet, it was like actually a pretty good uh, balanced diet. They ate uh, some uh, grass-fed meat every day, like six ounces of grass-fed meat every day, and uh, a bunch of these also uh, dark leafy greens, different, uh, these uh, soft thing containing uh, vegetables, 
uh, and colorful vegetables, as well as a little bit of like pumpkin seeds and maybe berries and like a plant polyphenol powder. And uh, yeah, with, that includes all these like methyl donors and uh, these uh, yeah polyphenolic activators. So, and as a result of that, after eight weeks, they saw that their biological age uh, was decreased by three years, wow. which is, you know, quite fast, quite fast the results. Amazing. Well, um, yeah, hopefully I'll, I'll link that, I'll link that study in the show notes because that's, um, yeah, quite, quite a fascinating, fascinating finding. Um, one other thing I wanted to add, Sim, was um, just personally, I got myself a, you know, CGM device, started tracking my glucose. Um, and I, I personally noticed that if I consumed, you know, 100 grams of white rice after, say, 8 p.m. or 9 p.m. versus 100 grams of white rice at lunchtime, the glucose spike was much more pronounced in the evening. So do you want to sort of explain how that sort of linked in with the time-restricted eating? Yeah, the... Um the, like, you know, our bodies have uh, their own circadian rhythms and um, based upon those circadian rhythms, we produce different hormones. And uh, by default, uh, we are very more insulin sensitive uh, during the daytime when the sun is out. And yeah, like around the noon is where we are most uh, insulin sensitive, uh, which means that we will be uh, most effective in clearing the bloodstream from glucose and, uh, you know, lowering it down. So, yeah, if you eat uh, later in the day, then uh, your insulin sensitivity goes down. And, uh, you know, just, just because of that, you would have like a higher elevation of the blood sugar a bit for longer. Mm. Uh, so yeah, like, you know, for, you know, arguably you could say that, uh, we should eat then, uh, you know, during the daytime, most of our calories for sure. And, uh, at least like not, not in the middle of the night, we shouldn't eat. And, but, you know, at the same time, there's also the thing that, uh, you know, um, although, uh, your, your natural insulin production goes down, uh, in the evening, you can also, you know, uh, still make yourself very insulin sensitive by exercising before you eat. So uh, one of the most, you know, the best way to actually make yourself insulin, insulin sensitive is to uh, do resistance training. And uh, resistance training activates this uh, GLUT4 receptor, which uh, basically uh, allows the glucose to enter the uh, muscle cells without the use of insulin. And uh, so you can just, you know, even, even if you eat later in the day, you know, if you exercise before that, then you shouldn't have like a big problem with the, the blood sugar regulation. Mm, yeah. Well said, well said. So now let's sort of um, segue into sort of discussing minerals because I feel like a lot of these minerals get neglected when it comes to optimizing health. So I guess, Sam, do you want to explore the importance of minerals in the body in relation to energy? Mm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Like uh, minerals are very uh, underrated, and uh, they're almost like you know the uh, different you know, different uh, let's say fuel sources that actually run all these processes inside the body. And uh, they start they help to produce energy. They help to produce neurotransmitters. They help with immunity and uh, digestion and uh, production of hormones, etc. So it's a very uh, important thing in relation to uh, energy production specifically. Then in the uh, mitochondrial electron transport chain, then uh, there's different complexes inside there. And all those complexes require certain minerals to basically conduct the process and uh, produce ATP. So those minerals are mostly with like magnesium is the biggest one. There's also uh, copper, iron, uh, sodium, and uh, zinc. Those things, all, all different parts of the um, electron transport chain and the complexes. Mm. 
So then I guess like with the, with the most common uh, mineral deficiencies, obviously every second naturopath and functional medicine doctor talks about the implications of magnesium deficiency. So I'm trying, I'm going to try and steer clear of magnesium, but I want to sort of focus on some of the other, the other minerals, like you mentioned copper. Um, do you want to elaborate further mm-hmm. on that? Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, uh, one of the biggest uh, deficiencies in uh, like mineral deficiencies in the world is actually iron deficiency uh, or considered to be like 25% of the people worldwide are considered to be iron deficient. But, you know, the reality is that uh, this iron deficiency anemia may not be actually caused by iron deficiency uh, because, you know, uh, iron itself, you know, consuming more iron doesn't necessarily mean that it gets activated or that it gets, you know, utilized properly. So uh, for proper iron utilization, you actually need copper. So copper, uh, like, you know, activates this, uh, or copper is used for this another, let's say, a hormone or enzyme in the body called uh, caruloplasmin. And the caruloplasmin uh, activates iron, basically, and, uh, you know, improves its uh, utilization and uh, hemoglobin production. So if you are deficient in copper, then you, you're getting more iron, especially from supplements, isn't going to you know, do, uh, do the trick in uh, most cases. So actually, iron deficiency anemia can be actually maybe a copper deficiency. Mm. And uh, usually there's also a lot of reflex in the diet. You get a lot of iron from uh, muscle meat and uh, let's say fortified cereals, but you don't get uh, the copper from uh, liver and maybe dark, dark chocolate and these beans and stuff. Uh, so yeah, like most people are getting enough iron. It's just that it's not really utilized properly and activated. Yeah, and I want to I want to add something to that, Sim, uh, in relation to uh, copper and how a lot of people tend to mega dose zinc, and so you know we know mm. that zinc has an antagonistic yeah. effect on on copper. So you know let's yeah. sort of discuss the the, the relationships there. Yeah, yeah, zinc uh, does like reduce uh, copper absorption. Uh, So if you are taking, let's say, a zinc supplement, then you also need to increase your copper intake um, for that. And the the ratios for that, if I'm not mistaken, are supposed to be like 20 to 1 uh, or something that um, 20 uh, or or per per, uh, per 20 grams of uh, zinc, you would need like one extra gram of uh, copper, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, Yeah, so that's kind of the ratios. So if you're taking a zinc supplement, then I, you know, like prolonged the zinc supplementation is is not a good idea anyway. So you don't want to use it only like, you know, infrequently or if you have some infection or something. Uh, and on at other times, uh, you know, just eating a lot of oysters. Uh, if you eat a lot of oysters or the foods that have zinc, then you would also need to have uh, foods that uh, have a bit more copper. So muscle meat is also a bit uh, higher in zinc, uh, definitely higher in zinc than it is in copper. Mm. Yeah, let's let's talk about calcium because i mean like i said before everyone talks about magnesium but there's a lot of people that can't tolerate dairy so mm-hmm. from the calcium perspective what do you you know what sort of calcium rich foods do you lean towards yeah like i do have like a bit of the dairy uh because i can tolerate it but um if you if you you have a dairy intolerance then uh the best kind of uh, foods for that are like actually uh, fish bones, you know, sardines. If you eat the sardines with the bones, then you're getting uh, some good uh, calcium uh, from that. And also like, you know, the different broths, um, like ribs, if you like tendons, ligaments, uh, chicken drumsticks, you get some uh, calcium from that as well. Uh, or, you know, eggshells, like uh, eggshell powder is uh, something some people use. 
Uh, if you grind it up and you can just mix it into um, some foods or something and take as a supplement. Uh, yeah, th those are kind of uh, good alternatives. And, you know, of course, there's some uh, calcium in these uh, dark leafy greens as well, uh, vegetables and things, uh, but it's, you know, arguably a bit less available. Mm. So what about, what about chromium? Because chromium is often considered, you know, one of the anti-diabetic minerals. Do you want to, what are your, what's your stance there on chromium and, and where do you prefer to get your chromium from? Yeah, uh, chromium is uh, mostly has to do with uh, better blood sugar reg regulation by like en enhancing insulin production, and uh, like chromium supplementation itself uh, doesn't seem to be like you know that effective or that beneficial for people who don't have diabetes. Uh, but it, if you have insulin resistance or diabetes, then it does appear to have like a this uh, benefit in uh, lowering uh, fasting blood sugar and uh, fasting insulin levels. Uh, I personally uh, do take uh, chromium as well on some days. I eat uh, carbs again to, to kind of help with the uh, blood sugar regulation. Uh, but uh, on a daily basis, uh, some chromium are um, things like uh, broccoli, uh, chocolate again, uh, and uh, beans. So yeah, oatmeal actually as it does well. And the kind of biggest source of chromium is like these mussels, um, these uh, seafood, seafood, and that those are quite uh, rich in the, the chromium. Mm. Awesome. Okay. So let's sort of discuss, um, you, you sort of touched on iron, um, you know, that that's a, a sort of a, a, a mineral that can be difficult for people to, you know, increase their levels. But what are some other minerals that people might be toxic in? Hmm. Yeah, well, actually, I think um, excess iron is, you know, quite, quite bad. And it's definitely one of the easiest ways to, let's say, overdo if you're eating a lot of uh, muscle meat or if you're eating these uh, fortified cereals, uh, breads, and uh, the like, you know, uh, granolas, things like that, those have like added uh, iron in there. Uh, so uh, like iron supplementation is definitely uh, quite like uh, dangerous, actually, because it increases like risk of like liver damage and, uh, you know, cardiovascular disease increase risk goes up as well because of that, uh, you know, I excess iron is going to just, you know, cause oxidative stress in the body. Uh, so I wouldn't like really recommend supplementing iron ever if you actually have like a, some serious uh, medical condition or you're like severely uh, anemic. Uh, but like I said, in most cases, iron iron deficiency is can be fixed like either like just eating more muscle meat or increasing your copper intake. Mm. Um, next to that, next to that, uh, mm. the calcium supplementation also appears to be uh, not toxic, but you know it uh, can be dangerous uh, by increasing the risk of calcification and uh, and uh, cardiovascular disease, atherosclerosis. Uh, which doesn't apply to calcium uh, from uh, the real food. So you could be getting like the same amount of calcium uh, from um, food, but it doesn't, uh, at least in studies, it doesn't increase the risk of uh, these uh, calcification and atherosclerosis. But the, the uh, calcium supplementation does, even if it's like the same amount, which is, you know, quite uh, interesting. Uh, and yeah, so the yeah, calcium supplementation, I wouldn't really take either unless maybe you're like severely old and you're not eating any calcium at all. Uh, from your diet, but uh, most people don't uh, really shouldn't do it. And uh, lastly, maybe uh, maybe I would say uh, you know copper copper supplementation can also be uh, bad. Uh, like you know too much copper can suppress your immunity and also cause like liver damage. So most people aren't getting enough copper from their food, but uh, taking like a copper supplement or like let's say drinking. Uh, water from like uh, copper pipes or something that can also lead to the accumulation of uh, too much copper in the body. Mm. So 
apart from sort of um, like objective blood testing for minerals, do you have any other sort of signs or like what, how do you go by assessing the mineral status of an individual? Yeah, well, uh, I think uh, there's a different, different um, methods for like each mineral. Uh, some people use like hair mineral analysis, uh, uh, like for example, for example, for magnesium, just a red blood cell magnesium count is, uh, you know, does suffice. So yeah, different kinds of minerals have different tests. Um, uh, but yeah, I would, you know, try to, uh, yeah, like the blood test is usually the kind of easiest way to kind of assess something and then also kind of pair it with like your symptoms, like do you feel the symptoms of a particular deficiency or not? If you don't feel any symptoms, then uh, you're, you're probably fine. So it's kind of also can be something to uh, overthink a little bit uh, because like, you know, the body is, you know, very adaptable and uh, we, 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 not, we don't like really fully understand all these um, different uh, relationships between these minerals. Mm, awesome. Okay. So Sim, let's sort of um, segue onto sleep optimization because um you've provided some pretty amazing resources in the realm of sleep optimization. So just curious to, to know some of your favorite sleep hacks. Uh, yeah, well, uh, I, I do like to use, you know, these blue blockers because it's very uh, effective for uh, filtering out the blue light and uh, enabling your melatonin production in the evening. That's also like when I, I saw uh, quite, quite a large increase in my deep sleep. So when I started using the uh, blue blockers, then my deep sleep scores increased by 15% uh, with the uh, measurement of the aura ring. Uh, so it does work in, in a sense. Uh, other things that I do, uh, uh, I do, uh, you know, think that it's also important to get exposed to this uh, daylight during the daytime, especially in the morning in the AM, because uh, this uh, sunlight exposure and uh, like, you know, producing vitamin D and the circadian rhythm alignment uh, helps you to produce melatonin at night as well. So if you are, let's say, it increases like, like your sleep drive. If you're, the more sunlight you're exposed to, then the higher your sleep drive is going to be in the evening and uh, the more melatonin you're going to produce as well, which is, you know, actually interesting because like plants that are exposed to uh, a lot of sunlight also have a higher content of uh, melatonin in them like foods, like the dark cherries, etc. those uh, foods are very high in melatonin because, you know, they're uh, sitting out in the sun uh, all the time. Mm. Uh, and so, yeah, you do want to, you know, you don't want to be um, stuck indoors all the time, which is one of the reasons why people may not feel tired in the evening, <clears throat> but just, you know, they're stuck indoors in front of their uh, computer and uh, just getting exposed to this uh, blue light. Mm, awesome. Okay. So what sort of, what sort of tips would you give someone if they're constantly traveling and they're changing sort of time zone, what, what are your go-to sort of, like, how would you biohack jet lag? Mm. Um, well, uh, whenever I, I uh, fly and travel, then uh, I'm always like fasting on, on the plane. So because it's uh, actually very, uh, very good for uh, preventing jet lag and uh, being able to adapt to the new time zone uh, easily. Because uh, your like your metabolism is almost like in suspended state if you're fasting, and uh, when you reintroduce foods in the new time zone, then uh, kind of the body adjusts to it a little bit better. And uh, it's also like very good for uh, mitigating the negative side effects of being in this uh, airplane, in this metal box uh, in the air, uh, because uh, like you are exposed to some radiation from the sun up in the air, and uh, like fasting actually does. Uh, 
let's say, uh, reduce the ex- effects of uh, radiation uh, by, like, with the process of autology and these other pathways, uh, they help you to deal with the stress. And uh, also, like, you know, chemotherapy patients, uh, if they fast before, uh, before getting their uh, treatment, then they uh, basically uh, recover better, a bit better, and they have like less of these negative side effects. Mm, awesome. uh, and you know, may, 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 uh, when it comes to like sleep uh, per se, then I would say learning how to take like naps. You know, this uh, polyphasic sleeping is uh, something that I'm uh, like really good at, and I'm uh, yeah able to like take these different naps at different times, and uh, this helps to kind of. Uh, you know, deal with the sleep deprivation as well as uh, adjust to the new time zone a bit better. You know, when I was researching a little bit on sleep in quite some time ago, I remember coming across some of the old school ways of viewing, um, you know, historical sleep patterns in humans. It, it, was it correct that some humans used to, you know, sleep for four hours, wake up and do things and then go back to sleep? For not, Is it biphasic sleep? Uh yeah, probably, probably did because you know, yeah, the back in the day they didn't have uh, safe houses. They were like living in the bush, so uh, yeah, they were, had to have like some sentries or someone to keep guard and uh, guard the flame, etc. So yeah, there are actually like different chronotypes in uh, people. So uh, some people are morning uh, people, some are night owls. So yeah, I think that yeah, some people are genetically um, more prone to like stay up later. And wake up later as a, as well as a result, uh, and yeah, I do think you know this um, let's say monophasic sleep, the, the one that we're doing uh, in uh, Western societies that we sleep uh, from like you know evening until morning in one block, like seven to eight hours in one go. That's monophasic sleep. That's not that's actually very uh, rare in nature and in hunter gatherer societies. In most hunter gatherers, they do something like a biphasic sleep, which is like. Uh, you know, two uh, blocks of sleep where they sleep maybe four hours, stay up uh, one to two hours again and sleep again for another three or something hours. Uh, and, you know, there's actually like more advanced polyphasic, polyphasic sleeping uh, schedules like triphasic sleep. Uh, there's uh, Uberman sleep where you actually sleep only for uh, 20 minutes at a time, eight times a day. <laughs> so, so yeah, there's different ways of going about it. And yeah, I think yeah, like some aspects of like biphasic sleep is probably uh, something that we're, you know, hardwired to do. Like, you know, the siesta sleep is the most popular forms of that. And in Mediterranean countries, they uh, take a nap in the afternoon, but they sleep a bit uh, shorter. Yeah, you mentioned that you're getting, you're getting quite good at, you know, implementing and deploying the naps. So like, like if you go beyond 30 minutes or like, do you have a set time zone for that? I, I usually don't uh, because uh, most of the time I do wake up uh, automatically after like 30 minutes or something. Um, if I don't, then uh, I would maybe sleep a bit longer, like 60 minutes or uh, yeah, but yeah, it depends on how tired I am. If I'm like really tired, then sometimes I can even sleep yeah, for an hour and a half. Uh, depends on how much uh, how much sleep did I get uh, the night before, but yeah, like ideally you would want to keep the naps a bit shorter, uh, like you know twenty to thirty minutes, because of if you you know go into the full uh, sleep cycle around like you know sixty minutes, then you may get waken up uh, at the middle of it, which can make you like you're very tired and groggy, so you actually feel worse than you did before going to the nap. So yeah, like if you take a nap, then it should be either like you know thirty twenty minutes or the full sleep cycle, which lasts for uh, up to 90 minutes. Mm, okay. Um, curious to know, Sim, like your stance on, um, on caffeine. Mm. 
yeah, well, uh, I do uh, like it. I consume it on a regular basis. And uh, yeah, it's, you know, the research does indicate that it's uh, pretty healthy for you in a good amount in moderation. And uh, yeah, I uh, I try to not drink it. I, I usually drink only like, you know, one to two cups a day at maximum. Uh, so yeah, I, I'm not like addicted to it. Um, I use it mostly for just uh, performance and uh, focus and things. And uh, yeah, I don't I don't have it uh, later in the day. I usually have it around like maybe 11, 12 at the, at the latest. Yeah. So let's let's sort of segue and discuss some of the performance, um, you know, strength and working out exercise because you've I know you've recently you've, you've packed on quite a lot of muscle in the last probably six months or so. Um, so let's talk about. I guess some of the um, training techniques and how they differ for like building muscle versus building strength. Yeah, well, uh, usually, uh, usually if you are getting stronger, then uh, some muscle growth is also going to happen. Uh, but not, you know, that you can you can also be like a power lifter that minimizes uh, muscle growth or muscle size and focuses only on like muscle strength and density. So there are different types of uh, muscle hypertrophy. Um, myofibrillar hypertrophy is basically like the strength side that your muscle. So you're sort of mentioning from like the, the mm. strength-based activities, things like that. You mentioned how powerlifters, um, you know, train for strength versus not so much for hypertrophy. So do you want to expand upon that? Yeah, the uh, the uh, there's different types of uh, muscle hypertrophy. Uh, myofibrillar hypertrophy is like the powerlifter side that uh, the muscle fibers become more dense and like more efficient at the firing. Whereas uh, the uh, sarcoplasmic hypertrophy is the bodybuilder aspect, where the muscle fibers, you know, expand and uh, get bigger, um, hold more fluid, etc. So uh, you know, any kind of uh, resistance training can uh, cause both adaptations. Uh, it's just a matter of you know how how you train. Usually, it has to do with like the amount of intensity that you use and uh, the volume. So uh, the the kind of near maximum effort uh, that the power lifters do or weightlifters around like ninety uh, percent of their maximum and one hundred percent that is uh, mostly training this uh, myofibrillar hypertrophy and the sarcoplasmic hypertrophy is usually around you know anything above sixty to eighty percent somewhere between there is going to be uh, sarcoplasmic hypertrophy. Uh, I I you know I do train both. I uh, I focus on strength mostly, and um, I add some, let's say, bodybuilding exercises as well into the mix uh, to uh, promote some sarcoplasmic hypertrophy. But yeah, like the main, most important part of building muscle is a uh, progressive overload. So you want to get stronger uh, over time, increase the weights, and you measure progressive overloads by you know adding uh, more weights, uh, doing more reps, doing more volume, maybe resting less in between sets. All those things can be a sign of progressive overload. But uh, the main idea is that you always want to keep pushing the envelope of uh, in increasing the intensity or the increasing the uh, weight you lift and making it a bit harder. So it's never going to get easier. It's always, uh, it should be always as hard as it is, uh, the stronger you get or the more muscle you build. I'm glad you mentioned um, the progressive overload aspect and not only focusing just on the weight aspect, but you know, decreasing the rest time, maybe increasing the time under tension, a lot of people yeah. don't realize that you know we can we can challenge the body by altering um, the aspect of progressive overload. But there's one aspect yeah. that I really want to look at, um, and that is the differences between concentric, eccentric, and isometric. I know there's a lot of research mm. that shows that eccentric is excellent for hypertrophy, but what about isometric? 
yeah, yeah, you're right. Like the eccentric uh, causes like the most uh, muscle damage, and uh, as a result, you call you promote the most uh, sarcoplasmic hypertrophy, and uh, it also releases actually the most uh, growth hormone, so it gets like the biggest like, hormonal effect. Uh, when it comes to the isometric, then isometrics are amazing for uh, strength because of your like you know resisting, you're holding it in place uh, in um, in static holds. Then uh, that is the best for strength because you're also like stabilizing your body at the same time. And you know all these gymnasts, they do like the front levers and planches and iron crosses. Those are isometric exercises, and they require a ton of strength. And this uh, isometric does uh, carry over to uh, you know pure strength in the sense. So it's also like you know is also like the best for uh, you know injuries and like strengthening the tendons if you do these isometrics uh, because you are focusing solely on the form and uh, just. Uh, getting a ton of like blood flow and uh, this uh, response in those uh, regions. The con- concentric, concentric uh, movement, I think that's, you know, also more appropriate for strength because you're like, usually you would have to do it like the most explosive, uh, the fastest as you can. So uh, that is good for strength as well as like power in general, like weightlifters, they, they like weightlifters and powerlifters, they actually minimize the eccentric function as much as possible. So they actually like drop the weight so that they wouldn't do like the negative uh, part uh, so that they would only train the speed and power so that their muscle fibers would be firing as fast as possible. So yeah, the, those are kind of the different types. So what influence do, do you think um, like the variety of the exercise? Because you know, like some people that start a brand new exercise, they get severe DOMS and some people even gauge mm-hmm. at one point I was like, if I'm not sore, there's no way I'm building muscle. So like, <laughs> right. yeah. Mm. Well, yeah, The uh, if you are doing something new, uh, some new exercise or you are training in a different rep range, then it causes more soreness uh, because your body like isn't uh, used to it and it causes like more damage. Uh, but as you get uh, more adapted, then uh, the amount of soreness and these DOMS also decreases. But it doesn't mean that you stop uh, making gains. Um, uh, so you, you, you still have to focus on the progressive overload. Uh, that is like the biggest contributor factor. Like progressive overload isn't the only thing that contributes to muscle growth, but it is maybe like, you know, 70 or 80% of the equation almost. And the rest of it does come from like muscle damage, which is, you know, the pump and uh, things like that. Uh, and uh, the novelty is also a contributor, but it's not, you know, the focus that you should. You shouldn't do like this uh, muscle confusion all the time. It is a good idea to, you know, mix it up every once in a while to bring your body a new uh, stimulus, but it shouldn't be something that you do like every week, every week, new exercise, a uh, new program, etc. You have to have like this uh, progressive overload uh, in, in, still in play. You know, what's funny, Sim, is like, have you ever thought about like pe- like prisoners, people that are in prison? Mm-hmm. Like, I'm sure that they do, you know, some crazy reps like 200 chin-ups a day or whatever but they're jacked like they get so big like what do you what are your thoughts there yeah well uh they're they're, they're probably you know uh they probably have like this very high frequency training so uh you know they don't have anything else to do in the in the prison so they're just training and they're doing almost every day so frequency is also like a pretty uh, underrated uh aspect to muscle growth and uh, strength because of, you know, if you are doing it very often, then uh, your body has no other reason to kind of uh, not adapt because it detects the needs that it needs to be uh, stronger. Uh, but, you know, probably if you have this high frequency, then you also need to kind of dial down some of the intensity. So you can't really go max out every day and uh, do a bunch of volume and uh, frequency all at once because you're going to burn out. So, you know, when, when it comes to bodyweight exercises, then you're, uh, you know, as you get really good at pull-ups, you can do like 20 or 30 pull-ups 
then that intensity isn't that high. Like uh, it's relatively like, you know, moderate intensity to you because you're really good at it. And uh, because of that, you can increase the frequency, so to say. Uh, if, you, if you're able to do 20 to 30 pull-ups, then doing it every day doesn't cause nearly as much muscle damage as uh, for someone who can only do, you know, 10 pull-ups, uh, it does. So yeah, like manipulating these different uh, variables of the training, you can also see some great results. And, uh, you know, personally, I've also done like this high volume, uh, high frequency pull-up routines, like 100 pull-ups every day for uh, a month. And uh, so, and uh, yeah, and, but, but, but because of, you know, dialing down some of the intensity, it's still like another different uh, new stimulus uh, that you can use to uh, build muscle. Because that would, uh, it makes me wonder whether they would look at us and think, there's no such thing as overtraining. Like they must think that, you know, where are we, <laughs> you know, and like think about their diet as well. There's no way they're getting 1.6 to 2.2 mm. grams, uh, grams of protein per kilogram. Right. Right. Yeah. Probably, probably not. Um, but, uh, you know, yeah, it's, it's just the high frequency. So it's like, even like, you know, farmers, uh, farmers who, uh, they don't, you know, train bodybuilding exercises, but they have like, you know, big forearms and stuff like that because of, you know, using their arms all day. Uh, but it's at like a very low intensity. It's not like a maxed out, uh, at least not all the time. Mm. So what about like timing of exercise? Like, do you have a preferred time to exercise or like what, is there any fascinating research you found in this realm? Yeah. Well, from a, like a circadian rhythm perspective, uh, then, uh, the muscle strength and uh, power does peak around like 4 or 5 p.m. in the afternoon. So that is, um, you know, I would say like that can be considered like the best time to exercise from like a, just a performance perspective. But, you know, any time is uh, still the best uh, that you can do it. So I, I think I do uh, personally work out at around like 4 or 5. Uh, but uh, yeah, that's usually just, you know, I think it's uh, mostly has to do with also like your habits uh, and uh, how you feel like different, different people have a different uh, these, uh, circadian rhythms as well. Hmm. Yeah, I find that um, I'm, I'm similar to you in that regard. I prefer to train around 4 or 5 p.m. or, for, or usually, you know, first thing in the morning. Um, I find that works best. From a protein intake perspective, you know, we're constantly at, at wrestle with longevity versus performance, you know, you know, restricting mm-hmm. protein will, will extend lifespan, but we also want to build muscle at the same time. So what's your sweet spot with protein intake? Hmm. Uh, yeah, I, I uh, try to aim for this uh, one gram per pound of uh, body weight, which is, you know, you don't really need more than that. And uh, more of that is going to be probably like just a waste. Um, but uh, when it comes to yeah, like the longevity side, then yeah, unless you are eating, you know, two or three grams per pound of body weight, then uh, that's the protein is probably not going to have like any real uh, negative side effects on your longevity. Uh, it's actually maybe beneficial because of yeah, like increasing muscle and strength, so maintaining your health span for longer. Mm. Um, and even yeah, like the, most of the like protein restriction um, helping with longevity is you know, there's no like real human studies that, that show it. Most of it has to do with like cell and animal studies. And even then, you know, uh, if you are doing, uh, let's say, this uh, time-restricted eating or indoor fasting, uh, then, um, you know, I think that that would also negate the uh, potential um, like side effects of having like a higher protein intake. Because when you are fasting, then uh, you're suppressing all these growth pathways that the protein stimulates already. Like you're keeping the mTOR pathway low 
your IGF-1 low and uh, upregulating upper autophagy and things. So you're balancing it out. And uh, if you are eating twice a day, then it doesn't matter that you're eating like a higher protein intake. And also like, you know, the uh, glycine supplementation uh, has been shown to uh, negate the uh, harmful effects of excess methionine, which you get from a muscle meat. Uh, so if you are eating only muscle meat, then uh, that maybe not be the best thing. Uh, so you want to kind of either get the glycine from these uh, you know, uh, tendons and ligaments, uh, drumsticks, etc., or glycine from uh, like a supplement. I'm glad you brought that up because I, I recently, I just did a video on um, the carnivore diet, exploring the, the benefits and, and the drawbacks. I'm curious mm-hmm. to hear your opinion. Like, did you ever experiment on the carnivore diet? What's your, what's your opinion there? Uh, well, um, I've never done it for like any longer than a week or so. Um, because I, like, I, I don't really feel, feel that I need to do it. And I haven't, you know, I haven't noticed any difference uh, as well. So yeah, I think it, it can be, you know, good for some people who have like autoimmune issues uh, or they have uh, some gut issues they want to uh, deal with. Uh, but, you know, is it, a lo- is, it, is it needed for everyone to do? <laughs> Probably not. Like most people are fine, like uh, tolerating even like gluten and the dairy and uh, these other like allergens and anti-nutrients, they're just fine. Uh, and yeah, this is just a specific group of people who, um, you know, may, uh, have to resort to that. Um, I, I think it actually maybe yeah, like a, not the best thing to do it, uh, for, for like a long term either if you're healthy, like, because you, you may develop these intolerances just by avoiding, uh, those foods and, you know, may, you may have like a harder time getting back on track. Uh, so yeah, from a longevity perspective, you know, if you're eating only meat, then, uh, you know, you are avoiding a lot of these, uh, potential, um, Say harmful foods like you know vegetable oils and uh, sea sugars and uh, other other processed foods. So just by virtue of that, you may see like an improvement in your health. That you uh, you know lose weight. You also see maybe like lower blood sugar, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, and uh, that's all thing. Mm. But you know personally, I think that you know implementing some plants is definitely uh, better because you do get like some harmful compounds from the meat as well. If you only eat meat, like you know iron, for example, if you eat only muscle meat, then you are getting basically way too much iron and uh, do one of the best ways to actually lower iron or um, let's say uh, gelate it is uh, with coffee and uh, teas and also like the vegetables they help to kind of uh, bind the iron mm. and uh, get rid of it yeah i'm glad i'm glad you brought that up and there's one other thing i'd like to add to that is um we must not forget the anti-cancer molecules found within plants like you know resveratrol sulforaphane yeah. and this enterostilbene in blueberries, like I think there's definitely a time and place, you know, for the, for the carnivore diet. Um, it can mm-hmm. be a powerful tool, like you said, for autoimmune diseases, but long-term, I, you know, I just don't see it as a very sustainable option. So Sim, yeah. where can, where can, this has been an, an action-packed episode. Where can my listeners, you know, learn more, connect with you, um, follow your channels. I know you have a book you've just recently written with Dr. James Antonio. So do you want to share where people can find that? Yeah, well, uh, my uh, website is seamlund.com and uh, I'm also seamlund on all the uh, social media apps and their books are all on Amazon. Awesome. So I'll make sure to leave them linked in the show notes. Sim, thanks for coming on the show, man. It's been a pleasure having you. Yeah, it was a great talking with you. Awesome. Thank you everyone for joining in to today's episode. For in-depth show notes and lessons learned, visit nofilter.media forward slash boost your biology. This has been a No Filter Media production. Say what you want.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.